the, the medicinal quality of our food or the, the efficacy of our food, right? Like how, how nutritionally dense is our food? And that's based on the soil and what's going on in the soil. Maybe you're interested in that. Or if, if you want to understand like, you know, how to cook food and, and, and cook for the people that you love and, and share that gift with people, um, then you'll learn how to prepare food and you, you'll, you'll build a different relationship with food that eventually goes back to the earth. Greetings, everyone. My name is Alfredo Gonzalez Valenzuela, and you are now at the Climate Frontline. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo, and you are now at the Climate Frontline podcast. The show where I engage with leaders in social movements, industries, and artists to really have a conversation that centers those communities and their needs, their interests, who are at the front line of climate change. And before we get started, I just thought I'd cover a couple headlines that have, you know, come towards me. One being uh, recently in Bolivia they have elected a new government and they have elected a government who is led by an individual who used to work for Evo Morales, the first native indigenous president of Bolivia. And when this news came to me, I was really happy because I know that the U.S. had backed the coup against Evo Morales and it was a really sad day for me. So to have... um, a new candidate come into office who is closer to those folks, those indigenous people, was some fresh air on on me and during my day. So I wanted to share that with you. And if you're interested in getting some content about that too, let me know. I'm, I'm actually interested in doing some research around that as well. And also, even the debate last night, between the two candidates for the presidency of the United States. It was interesting because towards the end, they were asked questions around those people who live near oil refineries or factories and and what their experience are, uh, what are the problems they're facing, and uh, how they can go about alleviate them. And I noticed that the addiction there was very different, right? They didn't necessarily use... The climate front lines, they refer to them with some other words. So who knows, maybe in the future, they'll be integrating a little bit of who the people are at the front line of climate change. And my hope is that this community is going to drive that narrative and not mainstream media. And as you know, we do the change in narrative one conversation at a time. Our community is doing that one conversation at a time. And so today... I wanted to have a conversation. I wanted to share this conversation I had with a colleague of mine. Her name is Michelle Thorne. She has a podcast as well called Food Slain. And she's really passionate about diving into 
the details of the food supply chain, of the labels behind foods. And I think it's really powerful, not only because I love food, and most of you also love food. I don't know many people who don't love food. <laughs> but it's important, I think, because it has, she has a critical lens in how she analyzes food, not just in the US-centric way. She actually had an episode where she uh, interviewed people who are doing work in Peru and trying to understand issues around quinoa. So I appreciated that because, you know, it's not just uh, one perspective. It's, she's trying to encapsulate other perspectives as well. A quick story I wanted to share is just one that is, I think, maybe unusual or usual in these times. I'm not quite sure. At any rate, I was looking through LinkedIn one day and the school that I had graduated from was featuring this uh, podcast. Uh, the podcast name is Food Slang. And it caught my eye simply because food is the main way, I think, in which we relate to land and the environment. And so I quickly clicked on it and started exploring what was happening in that space and wanted to engage with Michelle. So I have Michelle here with Food Slang at the Climate Frontline. Welcome, Michelle, to the podcast. Thank you, Alfredo. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for finding me on LinkedIn. It was That was so random, but it was really great. It's always great to connect with other alumni and see what everybody's doing and just stay in touch and keep the conversations going. So it, that was really, really great. I really appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, there are some good things that are coming out of technology, right? <laughs> hey, um, yeah. I know we were talking before this uh, a little bit about, you know, um, what the different hats you wore over time, but would you just share that story you were telling me um, about how, um, how really you were talking about this way before uh, your podcast and, and this story you were telling me about New York? I wanted to hear that story from the beginning. <laughs> well, I'll try and condense it down so it's not too long and drawn out, but I'm a native New Yorker. I was born and raised in New York City. And, you know, I spent most of my um, adult life and, and formative years growing up in New York. I, my first career and my undergraduate degree was in art. So I'm a graphic designer and marketer by trade. That was my first career. My first business that I ever started was a graphic design company. And I designed a lot of, a lot of music industry stuff that I'm sure some people have seen. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have seen at some point along the way, but that was really my first career. But simultaneously, I was pursuing a passion uh, of health, you know, health and wellness at the time. Uh, you know, this is way, way back in the day. In 1991, I did my first juice cleanse and raw food, you know, fast. And I did eight days just right out the gate. And it changed my life forever. It really opened my eyes to uh, food and how food is related to health and the impacts of food and how food can help you or hurt you. And it was really a rabbit hole for me. And I went deep. I went so deep. I, I explored every you know, health food diet or trend that you could think of that's been around. I was my own... Um, 
guinea pig, so to speak. I really just wanted to understand <laughs> food and, and how food impacts health. And that's kind of where it started for me. And shortly after, uh, not shortly, but after, after several years as an entrepreneur and graphic designer, I decided when I got pregnant with my son that I wanted to just kind of switch gears because sitting in front of the computer and working 20 hours a day as an entrepreneur, it just wasn't going to work for, for me being pregnant. And I, I just didn't want that experience being pregnant. And so I decided to go a little bit deeper and I started making his food and I started researching and then I started teaching. I've been a food educator for a really long time. I started teaching classes on vegetarian eating at the time and then I transitioned into raw food eating and then I became a chef in New York City and I apprenticed and became an executive raw food chef at a vegetarian wine bar in New York City. And so I had that experience. I became a raw food chef and a I had my juice delivery service. You know, I've had many clients over the years just doing that. And that's what a lot of people know me for because I'm this is like zealot, you know, where I'm just, you know, bringing people juice all the time and smoothies. And, you know, that that was a really great uh, creative part of my food experience because I was able to see the food industry from many perspectives, from an educator perspective, from a consumer perspective, from a health and wellness perspective. Uh, perspective and from a chef and restaurant front end and back end. And so it was really uh, a wonderful time in my life that, that really opened my eyes to food. I want to come back to a little bit of what you shared. You know, you were mentioning um, having experience from the back end of the restaurant, front end of the restaurant as an educator and just all these different vantage points with food. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm curious to know to what extent does language play a role in, in understanding food and, and your experience from the, those different vantage points? Well, I think the role that language plays, and that's a really interesting question because most people don't think about food as connected to language, right? Most people don't put those two things in the same basket. But I think the role that language plays in food is really anchored in education. You know, it's also anchored in marketing and messaging, right? And so it's a it's it's a, a two-sided coin. On the one hand, you have education where you're striving to share information that provides value to people, that gives them the tools to meet a goal, right? If people come to a class that I'm teaching, They want to learn something. They want to know how to do something, which is why they signed up for the class, they pay for it, and they're there. And so, you know, the language that I think uh, in the education part of food is can be very empowering, right? When you teach somebody something and you teach them how to uh, live a healthier life or you teach them a, a way a food grows or you teach them some, you know, unique information about a specific ingredient that empowers them to take that information and do something with it. I remember I had one person in one of my classes just, just maybe a year ago, 
maybe two years ago. And I, it was my first kind of farm to table food class. And I was so excited because I had grown all of the ingredients just about, you know, maybe 80% of the ingredients I had grown. And it was very exciting. And one of the attendees got really interested in the peppers that I had. I, I had grown paprika peppers. Mm-hmm. And he was asking me all these questions about the paprika peppers. And, you know, he was thinking about maybe growing them. And so I gave him a pepper because peppers are amazing. They contain all the seeds in there. And I just gave him a pepper. And he got really excited about growing that particular variety of pepper. And so the role of of, of language and words in that just that one exchange, me educating him about where the food came from, that I had grown the food, that it was grown, you know, with organic practices, that, you know, it came from my uh, garden and my farm or whatever, empowered him to take action, to do something positive in his life with his food. Now, on the flip side, when you start talking about marketing and messaging, it has been very eye-opening to me because marketing and, and graphic design is my first career. And so I've been in that space and understanding how that works psychologically for us as consumers, right? We are, we're motivated by packaging, what we see. And, you know, we, we choose with our eyes and our senses. So that's a different language. But I think when we're talking about words and we're talking about food, the flip side of that empowerment, I think, when it comes to marketing food and marketing, uh, when we're taking in messages, right, that companies are putting out on their packaging, they're putting in their advertising, you know, it's all about getting our attention and convincing us in some way to buy their product or to consume their product. And so I think that there can be some very negative outcomes to that because what I have discovered in my research, specifically through Food Slain and my podcast, is that there are a lot of companies that are motivated by being deceptive. Mm -hmm. They, you know, there's a lot of deception. There's a lot of obfuscation. There's a lot of, you know, mysterious happenings behind the curtain, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't really know what's going on when we are going to the grocery store. We're not talking to anybody besides the cashier, right? Yep. We're not talking to food producers. We're, we're just going to the grocery store. We're getting what we need. We're, we're making uh, assessments on packaging, on price, right? Like all these kind of trade-offs, right? Is it is it cheaper? Is it more expensive? It depends on our constraints. You know, the... The voices of some of my elders uh, whisper in my ear that um, food is really uh, this way of relating to land, right? And I just, for me, I wonder the extent to which this word organic does justice in terms of encapsulating the whole supply chain for food. And if it does improve it and it becomes better, at least in the grocery store, then it becomes better for whom? Um I think these are just questions that are coming in my head as you share this. And also with language, I would say, you know, I remember when I immigrated to the States mm-hmm. and um, I knew about Cheetos, people knew about Cheetos, 
<laughs> and people know that, right? But then that's one word, right? That one one word that I'm sure is painted a, a picture in someone's mind that's listening to this right now. However, quinoa is another word, right? And quinoa was not something that uh, was as popular as it is now today. And I know you obviously did a whole episode on that. Uh, if folks want to listen to that, please check that out. It's an amazing episode. So like these two words um, have different meanings. They have different stories and they can connect you or disconnect you in one way, right? This comparison that I'm using. And to me, the relationship that you're you're describing here of uh, a teller or, or not a teller, but someone who is at the uh, checkout stand, right? That person right. who has a name tag on them, you may not know necessarily that person. You may just see them every weekend when you go shopping for your food. And I think there's a compare, when I compare that to my experience shopping for food in, in my hometown, it's like, uh, you either know the person that grew it, or you know, pretty much the family next to them. And you have that relationship. And you know, it's not a brand that, that, that they're selling. It's, it's the food that they grew. And so I wonder, I'm, I'm curious to know to what extent do brands allow us to be in relationship and, and, or be disconnected from the environment from your perspective? Wow. That is a really difficult question. I, I, I um, it's not black and white, right? It really isn't because I think that there are many brands that want to tell their story, right? Like, so for example, we can take the quinoa example, right? The simply, simply good, right? They're, they're, they're not necessarily a brand, right? They are a, a distributor, right? They are the person who is connected to the grower, but is importing the commodity into the United States for consumption, right? And, you know, they they are building a brand in the sense that they want to educate people about who they are, what they're doing, how they're connected and building relationships with growers and families and the land. And they're protecting, you know, the res the natural resources where the quinoa is grown. And, and so there's this story telling that happens, I think, with brands who are very um, transparent and, and want to communicate the good work that they're doing, right? Contrasted with, say, the large brands like uh, I don't know what a large brand of quinoa is, but there's plenty of large brands that well, we can Costco, do. right? Right, Costco, right? Costco sells quinoa in bulk, and there's no story. You go into Costco and you go down the aisle and you see quinoa there. There's no story. There's no representative, even though you can look on the back of that package and you can see the country of origin is Bolivia right? You can, anybody can do that. You can go there and, and check out the quinoa package and, and find out, okay, this organic air quotes, organic quinoa came from Bolivia. Now that might make you feel good, right? Because you are, 
your perception of organic says that, well, organic is better, so this must be pretty good. Well, Costco's selling it and it's affordable, so it must be pretty good. And I have a membership, so I'm going to go and get my, my quinoa from Costco. So, you know, that's as far as it goes because there's no representative from Bolivia saying, oh, well, you guess what? This quinoa is actually destroying the cultural fabric of our country. <laughs> if you knew that, would you still make the same decision to buy that quinoa? Yeah, and oftentimes uh, I see folks paying that extra dollar or cents to go for the organic, right? And I wonder if if that's an opportunity uh, for that extra cash to be invested in, in somewhere else because uh, like you're saying, like if, if you're not fully looking at this uh, with the international uh, supply chain a- aspect of things, like, yeah, it may be good for you it, it, because it's organic, but what's going on with, to those folks who are in the Altiplano, who are in Peru, who are in Bolivia that are growing this quinoa? Those are the communities that are at the front line of climate change whose glaciers have been retreating and will be experiencing and have been experiencing water loss. And I just, it leaves this enigma, right? Of like, okay, it's not black and white, but like, is there an opportunity there to do a different type of business, a different type of economy and and shifting away from some of these uh, things? You have people who have PhDs who are considered the experts in, in these topics, right? Like climate change. And then from the other side, you also have native peoples who uh, have this knowledge that is not written, perhaps, but it's still facts uh, of, of their ancestors and their stories that come with them. And so I mentioned this because I'm curious to know you were mentioning, um, you know, that you were kind of in this food uh, and you're still in, in the food train, if you will. But at one point you encounter hospitals, right? And it's a it's a bigger issue there. And I'm curious to know then, how do you experience food in a hospital setting when in, to many people's eyes, food is the medicine. So why do we need hospitals? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. <laughs> and it's a funny one. I'm laughing because there, there's, you know, as you were asking me that question, A, Thankfully, I've never been in a hospital. I've never had to eat hospital food. Thank you. I'm so <laughs> glad I've never had to have that experience. But one thing that I do know is that industrial food, like in hospitals, like in um, you know education, industrialized settings, in the prison system, the food, the quality of the food is diminished because where it's coming from, who's producing it, and to what end? Why in the world would you feed people who are sick, who are challenged in, like with their immunity or challenged with a disease that's breaking down their, their bodies? Why would you compound the problem with food that doesn't you know, elevate them out of that reality? Right? Like why why wouldn't you give them food that actually supports immunity or supports blood cleansing or supports good heart, healthy, you know, healthy heart function? Why would you give them like the crappiest food? And that is, 
you know, that was part of the motivation when I was thinking about this problem. And yeah. it really turned me off because I realized that it was just, it's bigger than me. Well, if you it's end up in, in a hospital, I would think that it's an opportunity to make you reflect on maybe some things that may have gone wrong, whether it's, you know, with people or the food that you're consuming, you know, and that may be a good opportunity to then think about the problem of the food and how you're relating to the land. But if instead you're going into a hospital and then, you know, the doctor is doesn't know who you are and is going to try to prescribe you something, it, it, It sounds like the doctor needs its own prescription. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it needs like a, a transformational um, change really in there. Yeah. And it's, it's very formulaic. Everybody in the hospital gets the same meal, right? It's not a customized approach. Someone who's in there for heart disease is getting the same meal that someone who's in there for, say, diabetes. You know, I, I, I don't know that for sure. But it's an industrialized food system, you know, and and it, this is such a fascinating topic and I'm really excited. And the, the medicine way- is tested for different races yeah. and, you know, like it, it, it's deep. And so it's, it's not something that I think that we often talk about when we're talking about, um, or when we're talking about how we relate to each other and when we talk about how we relate to earth, you know, it's, it, it, we shouldn't be paying a doctor to tell us what's wrong with us. We should be looking at our environment, our economies, our, uh, and how we relate to people. T- tell me, um, Michelle, I'm curious also to know, you know, uh, food is complex clearly, and it, you're really passionate about it. And, um, the pro side is that you get to cook the meals that you want and they're going to taste good to you. Right. I mean, what better gift is there in the world? I, at least I can't think of many because I like to cook my ceviche one specific way. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah. So a youth that is, you know, 13, 14 and, you know, perhaps hasn't cooked yet or, or something like that. And they're thinking about an environmental career or, or just doing something that's not traditional. They may be listening to this podcast. What's your message mm-hmm. to them to either encourage them or discourage them to start engaging with food or do they even have a choice like what what's your message there oh i think that the i mean it's it's so important to engage with your food it's so important to commune with your food to be in partnership with your food to have a relationship with your food there's so many downsides to not doing that. If you don't have a relationship to your food, there's, you know, you, you know, it, that it's a difficult question in that it's two-sided, right? Like you can have a relationship with food that uh, produces a negative outcome. It can produce obesity, it can produce, you know, other health issues, diabetes, uh, you know, neuro disorders, right? Cognitive disorders, depending on what you're eating. If you have a relationship with toxic food, for example, right? But I think if, if we're talking about youth and it's interesting because I did a podcast, I interviewed some Gen Zers recently Mm. and, you know, these, these were 19 year olds and they were on this kind of epic adventure to understand where their food came from. 
And, you know, they were in college and they were trying to do the, the right thing, right? Air quotes, go to college, get an education, get a job, climb the corporate ladder, da, da, da. And they abandoned all of that to, to live and work on a farm, to do exactly that, to, ha- to build a relationship with their food, to really gain an understanding of what it takes to be self-reliant when it comes to your food, because it's such a huge part of our lives. It's a huge part of our culture. It's a huge part of our, our health outcomes, Right. It's a part of our relationships. It's how we celebrate. It's how we mourn. It's how we kind of self-medicate, you know, in, in many ways. And so I would say to any youth to, even if you only have the opportunity to have a windowsill garden, mm-hmm. grow some herbs or to, you know, find your find what's interesting to you. Maybe you want to grow flowers like edible flowers, or maybe you want to, you know, understand how the, the, the soil web works, right. And, and why that's important to the quality, right. The, the medicinal quality of our food or the, the efficacy of our food, right. Like how, how nutritionally dense is our food? And that's based on the soil and what's going on in the soil. Maybe you're interested in that. Or if, if you want to understand like, you know, how to cook food and, and, and cook for the people that you love and, and share that gift with people, um, then you'll learn how to prepare food and you, you'll, you'll build a different relationship with food that eventually goes back to the earth, right? Because as a chef, at some point, you start to wonder, where is it coming from? Where is my food coming from? And you start to think about the quality of ingredients. And you start to think about the presentation on the plate. And then you start thinking about cost, right? Because that's just part of running a restaurant or running a food business. Is you have to think about cost. And so I think that there are many ways for our youth to approach building a relationship with food whether it is from like a front end where you're providing food to consumers, maybe you have a product, maybe you are in relationship with growers and you become a distributor, or maybe you're actually growing the food or whatever interests you, pursue it and and dig deep and try to, you know, choose what suits your your heart, your desire, your skill set, you know, what it is that you enjoy doing and go steadfastly towards your dreams. You know, just like, don't let anybody talk you out of it. Just go steadfastly toward it and put everything that you have into it. And, and it will be meaningful to you and it will produce income for you. If you, you know, are, are doing it in a way that is in alignment with your values, right? It, it, the money will come, you know, everybody's chasing money. That's what corporations are chasing. And it's not to say that we can live without money because it's clear that many of us can't live without money and money makes people do funny things. And it's not to say that I'm saying chase money. I'm saying chase value, yeah. Chase the things that are valuable to you. Chase the things that are valuable to others and the money will come. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the, for that message. I, uh, 
I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to be in community with me and talk about food. I mean, you know, they can take everything away from us, but at the end of the day, uh, the culture and food remains and it's something that continues to be passed down generation from generation. So, um, true. And I want to talk to you more about that. I'm really interested in your perspective, particularly because you like, like American culture, American food culture is one thing. And when you talk about other cultures, so for example, my ancestors are Caribbean and there is a food culture in the Caribbean, right? That is different than the food culture in America. Mm-hmm. And I interested in hearing you talk about the food culture in Peru, where you are from, where you were born and raised, and you came here to, to the United States, and what those differences are, because, and, and I think I know what you might say, but I'm going <laughs> to let you say it, because I think it's a really interesting um, perspective. I'd yeah. love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, food is, uh, I'm already hungry just talking about food. <laughs> and, and that's good though, because um, thank you, Michelle, for the opportunity. As I was saying, I just want to turn it over to you. Any other last minute thoughts or uh, lessons you'd like to share with my audience? You know, I hope that we all continue to dig into the food supply chain. I hope that we all, you know, find value in understanding what is in and on our food. And that's the work that I'm committed to for the rest of my life. You know, I try to look at things from a health perspective, from an economic perspective, and from an environmental perspective on my podcast. And, you know, if you want to listen in, you can listen in on foodslain.com. That's F-O-O-D-S-L-A-I-N.com. And you can connect with me on the socials at foodslain on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, you know, it, I have to do those plugs, right? Because we want to spread the message. And I appreciate you taking the time and, and making the effort to, to reach out and, and for us to have this conversation. It's so important. I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited about the work that you're doing as well, and specifically with youth and specifically in the perspective that you bring to the table, which is so fascinating to me when you start talking about language and the language and food and the relationships between culture and food and and climate and food and the land and food, which is very much, I think, a part of your ancestral culture, right? That That I think a lot of people born in the U.S. just don't have that connection anymore. We just don't have it. And I think it's it's really awesome that you're doing the work that you're doing. And I'm I'm super excited to invite you to my podcast, you know, whenever you can make some time to come on and talk about some of those things because I think that they're 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 meaningful and they're really important to my listeners as well. We don't just talk about problems on my show, although we do talk a lot about problems on my show. I also try to offer solutions. What can people do? right? What can we do? How can we fix some of the things that are broken? You know, and I think you might have some really great insight 
for that. So I'm, I'm extending the invitation to you to come on the show really soon. Like I want to do this really soon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, uh, I'm without words with, with, with what you're sharing. And, um, you know, there's a word that comes to mind right now. It's, it's Aini. It means in, in cooperation in Quechua, the, the language of, of who were the Incan people. And, and to me, Aini means not only cooperation, but, um, these things, you know, how we experience time here in the West, how we experience food in the West, how we experience, uh, each other, how we experience our relationship with mother earth is different. And I would just close out this show by saying that, um, uh, I am committed to you. I'm committed to your listeners in, in this journey that we're embarking on. And yes, we can get into a negative, very negative headspace, but it's, we're going to find hope and optimism with each other, with, with being in struggle with each other. Because I think the moment we isolate ourselves, we don't get to share recipes. We don't get to share how we engage with food. We don't get to have an opportunity to cook together. And if we're substituting that time, that opportunity to cook with each other, to learn each other's recipes, and may, maybe not even sit at a table because people don't necessarily sit at a table in other parts of the world, right? They eat with their hands. Sure. sure. If we're substituting that with uh, a drive through and waiting in a car staring into an iPhone or whatever other device that you're staring into, that's a missed opportunity that drains energy that takes away the humanity within us that we so crave and we so are dire in need for in this journey called life. So I look forward to having more of that conversation with you next time around. Thank you so much for being at the climate frontline podcast, Michelle. Thank you. I'm so, so glad and grateful. Thank you so much. So, that was my conversation with Michelle. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly think we are going to be better off by having people like Michelle being critical about the food supply systems and asking great questions about how it is that we get food and who is it that we get it from. So that wraps up that episode. I want to invite you to Follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can just search for Climate Frontline Podcast on Facebook. On Instagram, we're under Climate Frontline. And on Twitter, it's CFL underscore podcast. You can also email me at climatefrontlinepodcast at gmail.com. And I would just love to hear from you. I also know the holiday season is coming along. And... I am actually interested in giving out five different gifts that are all from Peru to people. So if you get in touch with me and tell me about what your favorite food is and maybe share with me, you know, uh, whatever you'd like. I, I lo I'd love to find out, you know, which episode has been your favorite thus far. Then I'm going to... Uh, enter you into a uh, uh, shuffle or like a, I don't know, I'll put your names in the bag 
and we'll pick some out and maybe I'll go live to pick out who the winners are. And right now I'm thinking three gifts, maybe it'll be five depending on how many names I get. But yeah, here's an opportunity for you to receive a gift from me, Alfredo, from Peru. So with that, I will see you next time at the Climate Frontline. Take care. The communities who are experiencing the worst effects of climate change are those who are best positioned to innovate solutions. Thank you for tuning in and being part of the changing narrative. See you next time at the Climate Frontline. Oh,